Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out, sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. The Way Out Podcast is on now with your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll hear the experience, strength, and hope of Andrew. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. So this is really Discovery Radio in that what I'm trying to do is learn as much as I can about your story, Andrew, what it was like for you when you were young, and really get an idea and a sense of who Andrew is and how uh, you developed uh, through your childhood. We'll get through some of your, uh, some traumatic experiences, I think, that uh, are pretty profound yeah. in your life and how those played into, you know, perhaps some of your um, alcoholism and addiction. And we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Um, tell me, where were you born? Omaha, Nebraska, November 21st, 1989. And that makes you a very young lad <laughs> compared to me. Yeah. What was your childhood like? Um, what was well, your family of origin like? Well, I grew up actually in Tempe, Arizona. and my so did you move there? So you were born in Nebraska. Yeah, I moved to Arizona when I was six months old. My dad had a business that moved us to Arizona. And so growing up, actually... My first memories are my parents divorcing. And, and, and how old were you then? Like not even five. Wow. Yeah. Um, so and I... what Was that a traumatic experience for you? The, there was one traumatic event where my dad tried to come in to see us while they're in the midst of the divorce. And they were fighting over the door because my mom wouldn't let him in. And then they eventually, or he eventually won the door... Uh, wrestling and pushed her back and she fell on her wrist and broke her wrist and to this day has uh, movement issues in her right wrist but um, that that was the most traumatic event of that divorce did is that something that you experienced firsthand yeah I was coming around the corner playing with my toys and saw my mom fly backwards and land on her wrist and my dad ran away and drove off it must have been pretty scary. Yeah, the cops were called, and it was intense for, I think I was like four or five years old. Yeah, and feel pretty helpless, pretty scared. Yes. Um, 
I wasn't necessarily scared of my dad, just scared for my mom. Right. So that's a traumatic experience right off the bat. Yeah, for sure. And uh, being born with a heart condition, um, I've had, I was born with a somewhat shut valve. So tell me about that. And what is the condition called when uh, this was since birth? So something you've dealt with uh, since day one. Tell us a little bit about the condition and um, how that affected you. Yeah, I was born with uh, um, a closed valve. Uh, Aortic valve was mostly closed. It allowed a little bit of blood flow through. Um, When I was born, they realized the disease right away but not prior to my birth. So I was taken away from my mom and put into an incubator, and they didn't expect me to live beyond my first birthday. Wow. Yeah. And then I grew up having uh, that valve unrepaired up until I was about seven, and growing up with that, I had a, a decent childhood despite the divorce, but I could never be like the normal kids running around playing because... Anytime I would do excessive activity, I would faint. Oh, wow. And that's something that you had to just discover, I'm assuming, at some point that it happened to you. And you ended up kind of working backwards and discovering it was because of your heart? Yeah. Wow. And so from a very early age, you did you feel maybe that you didn't quite fit in? Oh, absolutely. You weren't quite like the others? Absolutely. I don't think I've ever felt that I fed it, fit in for some time. And so as I got older, they did fix that when I was about seven years old. And then another heart condition came into effect. Don't know exactly how or when I got it, but it's pulmonary hypertension where your heart acts, uh, it beats too hard, too fast unnecessarily. Wow. And so and, and this was, you discovered this when you were seven? I discovered that when I was about nine. Okay. So there was two years of somewhat normalcy playing soccer and not having any issues. And then one day I was on the way to a soccer match and I fainted. And I was familiar with the the effects coming on early on. So I was lucky enough. I well, was running and I moved over to a grassy area so I could faint on somewhat comfortable ground. Did you then... Tell me, so let's back up a little bit. Um, we know each other through a, a, a uh, through the program yes. uh, of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had the fortune to get to know you, and we've spent uh, some time together, and I've really enjoyed your company and really think that you have an amazing story. So I wanted to bring you onto the podcast to be able to share that story. When you talk about that feeling different i think that's a common experience in our program and do you identify yourself as an alcoholic as an addict as both as both um although i may not i mean i've drank alcohol about a handful of times in my life but i know that if i were to pick it up at any point it'd become a new addiction for me Mm -hmm. and so that's why i just know from day one that as an addict i'm also an alcoholic and that's an important statement you made right there that because you know you're an addict and that alcohol is an addictive substance that by default you also identify yourself 
as a alcoholic. And for me, I'm a little bit reverse. Now I've had my, I had my substance use issues very early on and had a significant problem with marijuana when I was in my teen years. Alcohol really is what got me here. But I identify also as an addict because I, for the very same reason that I know through and through that if I were to engage in drug use, that it would very quickly become an addiction. That's just who I am. And I've been, by the grace of God, been able to accept that and accept my alcoholism, but also accept the fact that I'm an addict. So you're nine years old and you have this heart condition. Tell us, tell us how your life unfolds. Are you living with mom? Are you living with dad? What's family like? Uh, I'm living with mom. See dad on every Thursday and every other weekend. And um, my mom remarries in 98. Um, so a few years before I turned nine. And so, and both my parents actually remarried right around the same time. So I have a stepmom and a stepdad. And a lot my, of change. Yeah, lots of changes. And with my stepdad, he had two kids of his own that kind of came in, well, they came into the family as well. Uh, one was severely mentally and physically disabled, Michael. He was wheelchair bound and couldn't talk really. He would just moan and be stomach fed or fed through a stomach tube. And then he had another son, Anthony, who was, as far as I'm concerned, was fairly normal aside from being a genius. (laughs) Um, And so as growing up, uh, when I realized the new heart condition, they said I would eventually need a heart transplant. But they said not for years down the road, like when I was 16 or maybe even an adult. Sure. And so during through all that, my mom has uh, three sisters and her parents that live in Minnesota. So while waiting for my heart condition to kind of get worse, we decided to move to Minnesota. And during that, while we were going through that process, Michael, uh, my stepdad's first son, caught pneumonia and died from it and so that was kind of a big event because that was when he he blamed himself a lot for that and us as well mm-hmm. but that's his story him sure and but that but that's part of your story because it's part of his story right and so you end up living and growing up in a situation where you felt maybe responsible in some way for this traumatic event. Right. And I knew he took it out on us to some degree. And actually he picked, he was in recovery himself, but not active in AA Mm. and, uh, or in any 12 step program. And so when his first son, Michael passed, he relapsed and kept it a secret for about eight years from us. So when you say he was in recovery, was he essentially dry? Yeah, but he was a dry drunk, basically. So he wasn't drinking, because I distinguish that very clearly. Somebody who is abstaining, but isn't working any sort of program, is, for all intents and purposes, what many people in the program refer to as having untreated alcoholism. Yeah. And untreated alcoholism, I know for me. I've lived it in certain spots in my life. I can talk to my 
first ex-wife, untreated alcoholism can be an absolute nightmare for the person that's in that untreated alcoholic state and for the family around that person. Absolutely. Because I know for me, I was not well. And I wasn't getting better. I was angry. I was full of fear. Uh, I controlled the people around me to the extent that, that they didn't want to be around me. And did you find some of those character defects manifesting themselves in your stepdad? Absolutely. Tell me about your first experience with drugs. Um, so after we moved to Minnesota, I went in for a regular checkup, found out I was, um, I did need the transplant a lot sooner. And I'm kind of building up to that point about the drug use because um, going through the transplant, I was not your average patient. I was very active. I played pranks and jokes with the nurses all the time. And I stayed there for 10 months and but they said I was 100 times worse on paper than I looked because uh, the pulmonary hypertension had gotten so bad I almost needed a heart and lung transplant. You almost needed both a heart and a lung transplant. Which uh, survival rate is quartered if you get both. What's the survival rate of just one? Uh, heart transplant is about, I think, on average 75%. So, like, it would be down to 20% if I needed both heart and lung. And if I'm staring 75% in the face, I'm scared as hell. Well, I actually didn't even have that kind of odds because I had, I did have bad lungs because of the pulmonary hypertension. I was on a, a dangerous uh, experimental medication called Flolan, where if it was taken out of me intravenously, which was being fed through a pig line, 24-7. If, if it was removed, I'd be dead within three minutes. Wow. So, to me, you are somebody that beat the odds in a number of different ways, as we'll find out. But your survival rate must have been 20-ish percent. Uh, going into the transplant, the heart transplant itself, in April 19 of 2003, um, I was about 20% chance just to survive the transplant surgery, not 13 years later, which we are here now. That is amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And some of this stuff I'm finding out just as it's coming out of your mouth. So I am just as forward as anybody that's listening to this at this particular moment. That's amazing, Andrew. Amazing. I, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. So while waiting as an active patient, I got through that mentality of, okay, I could die at any moment. Okay, God, you know, is giving me this challenge in life. Did you believe in God at that point? I've always believed in some form of a higher power. I just perhaps maybe not agreed with the choices that were presented in front of me such as having to have a heart transplant, which in my mind was <clears throat> having a, some, someone else die in order for me to live. The organ transplant, the heart itself, you know, if I was to receive from somebody, they would have to be dead. And Did that make you angry at God? Did, were you resentful? Did you have a bone to pick with God over that? I was very resentful at God. And 
to this day, I still have a little bit of resentment over the transplant itself because it was a uh, 12-year-old boy from Duluth that died in a freak accident on the beach. And I received his heart like the next day, uh, which is a miracle for me. But, you know, what is a miracle for me is a loss for someone else. And such tragedy for that boy. But how amazing that something so powerfully good could come out of that. But I would imagine if it was me that there would be some guilt if I made poor choices yes. with my health that I would have a tremendous amount of guilt over those choices. Is that something that you struggled with? Absolutely. Uh, to this day, I still struggle with that. Um, you know, it's it wasn't just about healthy choices. It was about any choice, you know, not doing well in school, not making well friends. And, and that's kind of what led to my drug abuse was I've always felt like an outcast since day one. And so to try to, as, quote, fit in, I would uh, I would lie to all my friends that I'd already used drugs and alcohol, saying, oh, I went to such and such party, and I had fun. And so that way they'd be a little bit more comfortable accepting me into their drug and alcohol-using world. And that's when I first used marijuana. Amazing how you are able to encapsulate what I think is a extremely common experience. I don't fit in. I never feel like I fit in. I feel different. I am a part of, apart from, right. not a part of. Right. And the culture of drugs and alcohol give gave me that ticket of acceptance how did that do you remember how the drugs made you feel yes um the first time i used marijuana was in december of 2006 and i you know as i said i lied about my using to these friends we were in a car of some dealer or something and the first time i took a couple hits of marijuana i equated it to like uh, being on the very edge of a spinning wheel, you know, with your head spinning around and around and around, yet I'm still just sitting there stationary, and even in a parking lot, we were just sitting there being high, and I felt like I was out of this world. Those old-school spinning deals that you, that we used to see at the playgrounds, those kind, Exactly. Right? And you're on the outside of it? Yeah, with your head as with far your... out as possible. Totally get that. Yep. Totally get that. I remember writing an email to a friend that I felt that way. It's funny you say that because in the program told me that if we're spiritually grounded, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but if you're spiritually grounded, you can be on one of those so long as you're centered. So if you're in the center of that spinny wheel, you don't feel as much. Yeah. You're good. Everything else could be spinning around you, but you feel just fine because you're centered right. within your spirituality. So maybe that ends up being a part of you know how that works for you and uh, a, a great analogy for, for your recovery. Absolutely. You, you got high, and 
was it something that you just started to take off with then? Absolutely. Okay. Once I picked up that first, um, it was a one that I smoked out of. Um, I, I wanted more of it and all the time. Uh, I found a dealer of my own. I found a way to get it every day, uh, pretty much for years. And I smoked anywhere from like a half eighth of an ounce to a quarter of an ounce within a day or a couple of days. So you quickly became dependent. Oh yeah. On marijuana in order to function. Is that a fair statement? Yes. What would happen if you felt like there was a risk of not having? Like if I was short on money, yeah, I would uh, steal, lie, cheat. I even stole um, jewelry from my mom that I was going to pawn, but luckily she noticed the jewelry was missing before I could pawn it off. And actually, I don't know anything about jewelry, or I didn't then. And so what I stole was like just cheap plastic stuff. And I want our listeners to understand that it's very common for us to have high expectations of ourselves. And I think you expressed that very eloquently, Andrew, when you said, I had a lot of guilt over how I behaved and the choices that I made when they didn't live up to what I thought they should be and how what I knew I could be ideally Right. And then making decisions and choices almost uncontrollably that are contrary in exact polar opposites of how we want to be and feel like we can be. We feel like there's this person, I felt this way, that there was a person inside of me that I always could be, aspired to be, and then my choices regularly collided with that moral compass that I had inside of me, but I didn't know really that that was the issue. I just knew that I didn't like who I was. Right. So it just came out more like, I don't like me. I don't like looking. I, I, in fact, I hated myself, hated myself. And I didn't like looking at, at myself in the mirror. I just didn't like who I was. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. I avoided mirrors quite often and thought of breaking them many times uh, just because I despited uh, looking at myself in in the mirror. And um, I never kept mirrors in my room. Just when I'd go to the bathroom, I would avoid it. I'd stay in the shower extra long so they'd fog up and I wouldn't be able to see myself when I got out. How did your drug use and would you call it an addiction at that point? Absolutely. How did your addiction interfere with relationships? Um, well, with friends and family, as I stated before, I'd lie and steal to get more money. And I, with other relationships like girlfriends and friends, I would say I was one place when I was with another. And um, such as girlfriends, I would be with them, but I wouldn't fully be with them. I would just be with them so I could get something out of them. Same thing with friends. I was only acquaintances with people so I could get something from them, whether it be money, drugs, time, uh, attention. Was that always 
readily apparent to you in terms of how you were using people? Um, it started after about a month or two after I really got full-fledged into the addiction. Did you realize you were using people or did it... No, it took later to, uh, upon reflection. I mean, the stealing and the lying was obviously immediate and apparent, but the fact that I was using them for attention and other um, unnecessary needs came much later in my program. We'll talk about that. And I can relate to that. Had very selfish, one-sided relationships, though that wasn't a conscious thing for me that I was using people to the degree that I was using them. Tell me about how things progressed. Um, well, I eventually... Well, I did get caught once in a parking lot at a... at, like, a park while being high with some friends, and we're all minors at the time, so they just called our parents and let us go, and it was easy to convince my parents it was the first time when really I'd been using about at least a year, year and a half. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like a little slap on the wrist, and it was certainly not enough to wake me up. But as time progressed, I would abuse even more, and <clears throat> I started getting lots of paranoid thoughts, and the paranoid thoughts would continue throughout whether I was high or not, and along with uh, a little bit of psychotic thoughts, too. So you started noticing that potentially there might be some mental health... Absolutely. ...going on. So, so your mental health started to suffer. Yes. Um, as I picked up smoking cigarettes as well, I was seeing a therapist or I've been seeing numerous therapists before, during, and um, throughout my addiction, of course I would lie to the therapist that I was not on drugs. And, and I was taking the meds but I, um, that they did prescribe, but I'm sure they didn't have their full effect with me both smoking cigarettes and smoking marijuana. And like I said before, an occasional drink of alcohol. And I can relate to that, that idea that we're not well, not feeling well, not feeling well from a mental health perspective, depression, other things going on, and not being forthright with mental health professionals, which precludes their ability really to help us to the to best of their ability. Right. And so I eventually did get in legal trouble. I was uh, very upset at men in general. Um, that's a story for another time, but um, so I broke a window and threatened to kill someone, and uh, so they arrested me the following night, and uh, so I spent some time in jail, spent some time on house arrest, and, and then I was on probation, and you'd think that'd be enough for a wake-up call, but honestly, it wasn't. I violated probation a total of three times, two for drug Is that abuse. All? <laughs> well, not exactly. Oh, there's more. Yes. Um, I violated probation three times. They tried to get me for a fourth, but it was kind of a hearsay fourth, not exactly a violation because I was in jail when I violated the fourth time, which I couldn't because I was in jail. But um, so anyway, I violated three times, twice drug abuse and 
twice, so basically one I did both weapon possession and drug abuse, and the third time was just weapon possession. And um, so uh, while waiting my third probation violation, I was also given four years of probation from my initial crime. And while awaiting in jail on my 21st golden birthday, I uh, they filed f the Washington County filed for civil commitment of mentally ill and dangerous for me while I was in jail. And then from jail, I went to a, Anoka for a few days and then to St. Peter Regional Treatment Center. So for anybody that's not from around these parts, Anoka's north of Minneapolis and St. Paul proper, and there's a mental health treatment facility. We'll call it that. In Anoka, mm -hmm. and then there's St. Peter. Which is a maximum security hospital for the mentally ill and dangerous. Or in the old days, they'd call the criminally insane. So when we, there's a program, there's a, there is a very common saying in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that says that we invariably will end up, if we don't, uh, those of us that are true addicts and true alcoholics have three outcomes, jails, institutions, or death. And for you, Andrew, you stared at all three of those mm -hmm. and experienced two of them. Correct. Jails, institutions, and you stared death in the face. Many times. I, I'm, I'm speechless. And you know me, mm -hmm. Andrew. That doesn't really happen to me. No, not at all. And uh, so once while in St. Peter, that was pretty much my biggest wake-up call and the last wake-up call I've had. Um, it's a very intensive, secure facility that treats mental illness and later on treats uh, addiction. And that's when I accepted the first step for myself. Tell me what that first step is. What is that? Admitted, we admitted that we are powerless over alcohol and drugs and cannot manage our own lives. We're How lives old were you when you accepted that? Um, 21. The first step for me was so powerful. I ran for from that for a long time. Had you had any exposure to treatment or, or, or the 12 steps or recovery before this? Yeah, I had been court ordered to do an outpatient treatment, which I did. In front, it was in Stillwater. I forget the name of it. It was in Stillwater that I did for about three months. But it was extended to about five because I kept missing it and getting high. And how old were you then? Uh, 19, 20. So there was years where you were very aware of treatment, recovery, 12-step based recovery programs, but hadn't gotten to the point where you were ready to accept. No, I was abusing uh, synthetic marijuana which is not detectable or was not detectable by UAs at that time, which I was on. And uh, I was court ordered to go to U uh, AA 
and or NA um, about twice a week. And I did go, but it was kind of a half-ass sit in the corner. Hi, how are you? Mm, whatever. And then leave. I like to call that the nudge from the judge. Yes. Now, how did that? How did you feel at the moment that you accepted step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and drugs and that our lives had become unmanageable? Um, I realized I faced basically my history of exactly what had happened and looked at it through after being sober about six months in institution and in jail, looking at it from the uh, a clear and clean aspect of, wow, this is exactly how much I've damaged my life. And if I don't stop, it it's going to continue or I'm going to get that third option of death. The power behind step one for me was amazing. Was it amazing for you? It was a more of a gradual acceptance through lots of journaling and therapy. Mm -hmm. um, I had accepted not just that, but many other um, fallacies of my own personal defects and just kind of bit by bit was like, okay, this is an issue. This is how I handle it by not doing it. <laughs> how long have you been sober? Uh, five and a half years in September. It'll be six. That's amazing. Nights and weekends too? Yes. Amazing. Extraordinary. Thank you. Awesome. Andrew. Awesome. For me, the power of your story really lies in the serious trauma that you went through in your childhood. You went through a divorce, uh, which fundamentally changed everything that you knew to be real. Mm -hmm. You suffered two, two independent heart conditions, had an extraordinarily low rate of survival uh, on your heart transplant, stared death in the face, weren't expected to survive as long as you've been surviving, mm -hmm. took a heart transplant from an act accident victim, a 12-year-old child, and carried a significant amount of guilt and shame for the your perceived transgressions so much so that I can't imagine how much you must have unnecessarily beat yourself up. Yeah. I would say that through going the program, the fourth and fifth step have been most helpful for me. Um, forced, uh, when you talk about the program, mm -hmm. for those of you who are unfamiliar, if you're new, there's 12 steps. The first step is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And that was pretty monumental for you, it sounds like, in terms of being able to turn that page and start to recover and start to get well. Yes. And start to, well, recover. Yes. But I, I feel like that was just the beginning of my recovery um, because there was always that those resentments in my head. Ah, yes. resentments. And uh, it wasn't until I did a f first time uh, go around to the fourth and fifth step. Uh, I did my fourth step with a chemical dependency counselor. And at what's the, the fourth step? 
made uh, searching searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Why on earth would somebody subject themselves to that, Andrew? That sounds horrible. It is a little painful to go through, however, very necessary to fully recover. Because, see, when you become sober and you accept the first step and the first three, you're still stuck kind of wondering, what am I doing with my life? I've done all these X, Y, and Z terrible things. Do I deserve a better life? You're carrying around all of this burden Mm -hmm. from your past life. And if we're carrying this big rock, and there's a great talk from Clancy, who talks about drop the rock, and this is really all about that, identifying that we're carrying this big burden with us that we continually beat ourselves up over some people to a larger extent than others and it sounds like for you that was a very big part of your recovery absolutely i went through the first uh as fourth and fifth step in the treatment uh facility of saint peter and i actually just recently did a second round of fourth and fifth step just did my fifth step with a pastor from my church last week on Tuesday. And you texted me that, and I thought, that is so great, that is so awesome, because the step five, four and five for me, were so monumental to my recovery, and so pivotal, pivot, I can't say it. Help me out, Andrew. Pivotal. Pivotal, I can't say it, I don't know. The, so important to my recovery, to be able to let go of all the stuff that I had been carrying for years and years and years, I don't even like to do a searching and fearless sock inventory, Andrew, <laughs> let alone a searching and fearless moral inventory. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that when we do this moral inventory, we're finding some things out about ourselves we're, uh, and we're taking stock, a true stock of the good, the bad, the indifferent, and the patterns of behavior, how they affected others, what motivated the behavior, mm-hmm. the fears, and the angers, and all of those things. And we're taking that, and we're taking a complete picture of that so we can understand it. Some of us may have beat ourselves up more mm-hmm. than we should have. Yes. Some of us maybe have minimized some things. And for me, I found that it was a little of both that there were certain things that I really got that bat out and beat myself up over, over, and over, and over. And until I got them down on paper and was able to share them with another human being and God, I wasn't able to effectively let go of those things, so they plagued me to a degree that's hard to explain. Absolutely. And there was other times, other things, and other behaviors that I completely either minimized or didn't even know I was doing. And that was probably more shocking as for me when I went through my inventory to realize that every single relationship that I had before entering a recovery was selfish. Mm-hmm. And that floored me. Did you have a similar experience? Yes. Um, I mean, exactly, almost exactly the same with the idea of that I did use and abuse any and every relationship I was ever in prior to recovery and a little bit ongoing. Um, and 
then just realizing the roots of where those came from and exactly how I had been behaving and finally being able to not just tell someone and God, but in a sense, let it go with the step six. And step six does what for us? Um, it let it has us let go of all our uh, personal defects of character, which is basically all of our um, negative morals that we've or our negative behavior going against our morals that we've done in the past. And Bill Wilson in doesn't say a lot about it in the big book, but in the twelve by twelve and twelve, mm-hmm. he goes into much greater depth about six and seven. And one of the things I found truly liberating about six and seven in the character defects piece was the idea that these are natural instincts that you and I took to the extreme. Right. Where they became harmful to ourselves and to other people. A lot of those defects for me were survival mechanisms. I used them to be able to cope effectively with life because I didn't have any other tools to be able to effectively cope. I didn't have a God. I was also very resentful and angry toward God for the things that had happened in my life and wanted no part of a God that would allow those kinds of things to transpire in my life and other people's lives. I wanted no part of it. Mm -hmm. And he was on my shit list. That's just all there was to it. Mm -hmm. So to be able to go through one which was transformative to in the be able to understand that there is... It's a good thing that Adobe uh, updates you audibly when there's an update. That's fantastic. To be able to then release those character defects. I like my rock. I've been carrying this rock around for a long time. You want me to get rid of this thing? Yeah. But Andrew, I kind of like it. I've grown attached to my own rock as well. I know. So what we have to trust that letting go of that rock is going to allow us to then enter another dimension in our recovery. How do you, what, what, what on earth, Andrew, motivated you to let go of those defects that had served you? Maybe not so well, but they got you here and they got you there in one piece and it's all you know. What motivated you to get rid of those things? Um, belief in my higher power that there is a much better road ahead of me. And, you know, I have lots of uh, goals in life to get married, have kids, and have a house of my own one day. And all those things that normal people kind of want. And I knew that in my heart I was not able to move forward in life and not just in the material world, but in the spiritual and in the mental without letting go of these defects of character. You start becoming the person that you thought you always could be. Correct. The person I desired to be since I knew that I was going to take on all these travesties and triumphs and tribulations in life. That's the miracle right there that is the miracle because I bet for so long you felt like the divide between who you were and who you wanted to be was so great that there was no way on earth 
that you were ever able to bridge that divide, that it was so big. And today you're telling me, through the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and working the 12 steps, that you are becoming that person that you always wanted and felt like you could be, but for so long felt like it was impossible. Correct. It felt like it was on the other side of the universe. And now it's not only within sight, but I feel like I can bridge the gap within a short time frame, considering all that I've been through. Absolutely amazing to me. And you're an inspiration to me, Andrew. And I hope that others will find your story inspirational and can identify with some of the things that you battled and dealt with in terms of your uh, trauma and the guilt and the shame and the wanting to desperately wanting to fit in, just desperately wanting to feel a part of, but never being able to really get there falling into an addiction, battling that addiction, staring death at the in it right in in the eyes, going through jails and institutions and coming out of that and being able to start to live the life that you always knew was out there for you but felt out of reach for so long and start becoming the person that God would have you be. And I'm proud to know you. I'm proud to be your friend. And thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to reach out to Andrew, please email share at wayoutcast.com. And I will get you in touch with Andrew. If you have questions, if you want to just, you know, say that you love to hear his story. I certainly did. And uh, this was as much of a amazingly wonderful surprise for me as I hope it was for you all in podcast land. Thanks again, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.